Welcome to TSX Quarterly, the podcast that brings you publicly available earnings calls from companies listed on the Toronto Stock Exchange in one convenient location. Gone are the days of looking through confusing websites. You'll find the important information right here. Enjoy the call. and welcome to the Arinia Pharmaceuticals second quarter 2020 results conference call. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. A question and answer session follows the formal presentation. If anyone should require operator assistance during the conference, please press star zero on your telephone keypad. As a reminder, this conference is being recorded. It is now my pleasure to introduce your host, Dr. Glenn Schulman, Head of Investor Relations. Thank you. You may begin. Thank you, Jesse, and good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to Arinia's second quarter 2020 conference call. Joining me on the call from the Arinia team today are Mr. Peter Greenleaf, President and CEO, our Chief Commercial Officer, Mr. Max Kalau, Mr. Joe Miller, our Chief Financial Officer, and Dr. Neil Solomons, Chief Medical Officer of Arinia. Uh, this afternoon, we issued our press release and associated financial statement package detailing the second quarter 2020 financial results both of which are available on our website at www.areniapharma.com and filed via 6K with the SEC. Before jumping into some brief remarks from the team, I'd like to remind everyone that today's call is being webcast live on Arinia's Investor Relations website, and a replay will be available approximately two hours after the completion of today's call. Please also note that the content of today's call is the property of Arinia. It may not be recorded, reproduced, or transcribed, without prior written consent obtained from Arania. For approval, please feel free to reach out to me, Glenn Schulman, via email at ir at com. Also note during the course of this call, we may make forward-looking statements based on our current expectations. These forward-looking statements are subject to a number of significant risks and uncertainties, and our actual results may differ materially. For a discussion of factors that could affect our future financial results and business, please refer to the disclosure in today's press release our most recent filings with Canadian Securities Authorities and reports we file on Form 6K with the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission. Also, please note that all the statements made during today's call are current as of today, Tuesday, August 11, 2020, and are based upon information currently available to us. Except as required by law, we assume no obligation to update any such statements as of this date. Uh, so, I know everyone's busy in the summertime, so I'm going to turn it over to uh, Peter for some brief opening remarks and uh, updates from Neil and Max and Joe uh, regarding our pipeline, commercial preparation for Baclosporin, uh, and our financial results. After that, uh, we'll give a quick, uh, after those quick remarks, we'll also open it up for Q&A. With all that, let me turn the call over to Peter Greenley from Renia's President and CEO. Peter? Hey, thanks, Glenn. And uh, on behalf of the company, I want to thank you all for taking the time with us to uh, review our second quarter results. As Glenn mentioned, we issued our second quarter 2020 results this afternoon, along with operational highlights from the past few months. As a team, we're incredibly pleased to be making such a significant progress towards our goal of launching the potentially first-ever FDA-approved therapy for lupus nephritis, and getting our chance to make a real difference for the lupus nephritis community. This community has been underserved for too long, with no approved treatment options for the management of their disease and the prevention of progression into potentially life-threatening kidney failure. 
Lupus nephritis creates significant specific burdens on both patients and the healthcare system, even relative to sufferers of SLE. And we are incredibly proud of the work we're doing, both with Voclosporin and in our engagement with this community to improve awareness and hopefully outcomes for patients suffering from lupus nephritis. So moving on to our operational highlights, we will spend just a few minutes this afternoon to provide a quick recap before turning the call over to your questions. And needless to say, 2020 has been a very, very busy year for us so far, and things are ramping up even more so as we focus on potentially successfully launching Voclosporin in the near future. We have made significant progress since we turned the data card last December from the Aurora Pivotal Trial and have been rapidly and responsibly growing the organization in order to be launch ready with Voclosporin for the treatment of lupus nephritis by the end of 2020. Our clinical and regulatory teams continued their excellent execution with the early filing of our NDA package for Voclosporin with the US FDA this past May, even besting our internal goal by getting the filing into the agency nearly 30 days earlier than we had anticipated. As we announced a few weeks ago, our NDA filing for Voclosporin was accepted by the U.S. Food and Drug Administration, it was granted priority review, and given a PDUFA date, action date of January 22, 2021. In addition, based on communication received from the agency, the FDA has stated that they do not intend on holding an advisory committee meeting prior to the action date. We internally view this as a positive signal, but that hasn't stopped our internal preparations for an ADCOM since the agency reserves the right to change their view during the course of their review process. In parallel, we've been building out an experienced and nationally distributed commercial team, which we are actively recruiting in the months we last spoke in May. Despite the almost entirely virtual nature of our current operations, our recruitment efforts have gathered a world-class team with many talented and high-performing individuals with successful track records in the industry. This specialist phenotype is strongly aligned with our commercial leadership team put into place earlier this year. The rapid development of the commercial function has been gratifying, and they're united in their drive to swiftly move and efficiently get Voclosporin to patients in need after the potential approval. To that end, we anticipate on having our sales force onboarded, trained, and launch ready by year end. I also thought it was important to make mention of the successfully completed follow-on offering, which brought in over $200 million in gross proceeds to fortify the balance sheet and provide working capital for the next several years, excluding any revenue or non-dilutive capital realized from possible in-licensing or other ex-U.S. partnerships for Voclosporin. With a robust cash position of nearly $442 million, we can now fully execute on our plans. So with that brief overview, I'll now turn the call over to Dr. Neil Solomons to add additional color regarding the ongoing NDA review process and the ongoing Voclosporin development programs. Neil? Thanks, Peter, and good afternoon, everyone. As Peter mentioned, it's been a very exciting and busy time for the entire clinical and regulatory groups. Given the number of years that my team has worked on advancing the standard of care for patients suffering with lupus nephritis, we are truly humbled to be on the cusp of delivering on a potential therapy that can make a difference for these patients. 
and we are also quite gratified in the progress we've made throughout recent regulatory interactions with the FDA. As a reminder, the Orinia team maintained its regulatory momentum through the COVID-19 pandemic and filed the NDA with the FDA approximately 30 days ahead of our internal estimates. The Day 60 letter we received in July was also welcome news, as not only did the FDA validate and accept our Voxesporin filing for review, but also granted it priority review with the PDUFA date scheduled for the 22nd of January 2021. As we also announced last month, the agency indicated in their response, as well as in the recently received Day 74 letter, that they do not anticipate the need to host an advisory committee meeting for this application. That said, as Peter mentioned earlier, the FDA retains their right to change their mind throughout the review period with respect to scheduling an outcome prior to the PDUFA date. Therefore, the team continues to prepare as though an outcome will take place and continues ongoing dialogue with the agency regarding the proposed label, scheduling clinical and manufacturing site visits, and other routine, routine activities during the review period. We are also working diligently to characterize additional proteinuric kidney conditions that we could evaluate Voxesporin against. Over the next few months, we will complete an internal deep dive combining insight from across the organization, and we look forward to providing an update on the indications later this year. Switching gears to our Voclosporin Ophthalmic Solution, or VOS, the program for dry eye, we were pleased to announce recently that we have completed patient enrollment in the Orgy Phase 2-3 study. This 12-week dose-ranging study is evaluating three doses of VOS, 0 0.2, 0 0.1, and 0.05%, compared to vehicle. The primary endpoint of the study is improvement in Schirmatier test of greater or equal to 10 millimeters at four weeks, with secondary endpoints at 12 weeks. In addition, we are evaluating corneal staining, as well as improvements in symptoms of dry eye. With enrollment complete, thanks to the incredible work of our clinical operations, development, and biostats teams, we are on track to report top-line results from this Phase 2-3 clinical trial during the fourth quarter of this year. The results will also determine the next steps in the development program and guide our planned interactions with the FDA that we expect to have after the results are available and before the initiation of a second potentially pivotal trial of VOS. With that brief update on the clinical and regulatory fronts, I'll pass the call over to Max. Max? Thanks, Neil, and good afternoon, everyone. Thanks for taking the time. I want to take a couple of minutes to highlight the progress that we're making in becoming launch-ready for Voclosporin's potential approval in lupus nephritis. As Peter mentioned earlier, the commercial organization has grown exponentially over the course of 2020, and it's especially gratifying for me to see the depth and breadth of relevant experience of the individuals that we recruited to join our team. Across the board, we've attracted the most tenured individuals with nephrology and or rheumatology experience in the industry. Each member of our field team has at least 10 years of nephrology and or rheumatology experience. As a potentially first pharmaceutical company to support LN directly, we feel the responsibility to serve this patient community, and we're holding ourselves to the highest standards in building a premier rare disease commercial team. 
The patient will be at the center of all our efforts, surrounded by specialized, highly trained resources to support every step of the treatment journey. From LN diagnosis, to a treatment decision, to navigating access and reimbursement, and to remaining on treatment as prescribed. At every step of the treatment journey, we understand how LN patients can miss the opportunity to receive optimal care and potentially avoid disease consequences such as kidney failure. We aim to be at every step of the journey to support LN patients with dedicated experts in a way that is different from others. During the last call, we introduced our, our expanded and highly experienced commercial leadership team. We have made great progress in building on our strong foundation of leadership across access, sales, professional relations, advocacy, patient services, training, and operations. At last count, we've had more than 8,000 applicants for our open positions. We've interviewed more than 1,000 candidates, and we've hired more than 100 in the last three months. As of now, we've completed hiring for almost all our customer-facing roles. As Peter said, we are focused on being launch ready before our PDUFA date, and we're well on track to do so. The commercial organization also continues to come online in appropriately engaging customers. We have now started to engage payers to ensure they recognize the burden of LN and the value of our therapy for appropriate patients. We've enhanced our education efforts, and we're finalizing our launch plans. We're also well on track with building the infrastructure for customer engagement, compliance, and operations that aims to meet the highest expectations of our patients and customers. With that review, I'll now pass it over to Joe for a recap of the financial results. Joe? Thank you, Max. On the financial front, Arenia had cash, cash equivalents, and short-term investments of $264.4 million at June 30, 2020 compared to $286.1 million at March 31, 2020, and $306 million at December 31, 2019. Net cash used in operating activities was $22.6 million for the second quarter ended June 30, 2020, compared to $13.3 million in the same period last year. As we detailed in this afternoon's press release, for the three months ended June 30, 2020, we reported a consolidated net loss of $29.5 million, or $0.26 cents per common share, compared to a consolidated net loss of $15.9 million, or $0.17 cents per common share, for the second quarter ended June 30, 2019. The loss for the second quarter ended June 30, 2020, reflected an increase of $3 million in the estimated fair value of derivative warrant liabilities, compared to a reduction of $625,000 in the estimated fair value of derivative warrant liabilities for the second quarter ended June 30, 2019. The derivative warrant liability will ultimately be eliminated on the exercise or forfeiture of the warrants and will not result in any cash outlay by the company. The outstanding warrants expire on December 28, 2021. The loss before the change in estimated fair value of derivative warrant liabilities and income taxes was $26.6 million for the second quarter ended June 30, 2020, compared to $16.5 million for the same period in 2019. R&D expenses decreased to $11.1 million for the second quarter ended June 30, 2020, compared to $11.2 million for the second quarter ended June 30, 2019. The decrease in the expenses primarily reflected higher costs related to the preparation of the NDA submission and related supporting activities, the ongoing VOS Phase 2-3 Audrey trial, the Aurora 2 extension trial, 
and the expansion of the medical affairs team to support the launch of Voclisporum, partially offset by lower Aurora trial costs as this trial has now been completed. Non-cash stock compensation expense charged to R&D also increased to 1.1 million for the second quarter ended June 30th, 2020, compared to 749,000 for the comparable period in 2019, reflecting the hiring of a significant number of personnel in 2020 and an increase in the fair value of the stock options granted due to an overall increase in the company's share price. Corporate, administration, and business development expenses increased to 15.5 million for the second quarter of 2020, compared to 4.9 million for the second quarter of 2019. These expenses included the expansion of the commercial team, higher consulting and professional fees, insurance costs, and personnel compensation costs as the corporate organization build-out continued into the second quarter of 2020. Non-cash stock compensation expense charged to corporate administration and business development also increased to 3.1 million for the second quarter ended June 30th, 2020, compared to 1.2 million for the comparable period in 2019, reflecting the hiring of a significant number of personnel in 2020 and an increase in the fair value of the stock options granted due to an increase in the company's share price. Following the recently completed $200 million public offering, which closed on July 27, 2020, the company's cash, cash equivalents, and short-term investments totaled approximately $442 million at July 31, 2020. We believe that following this raise, we have sufficient financial resources to fund our current operating plans, which include our ongoing research and development programs, completing the NDA submission to the FDA, conducting pre-commercial and launch activities, manufacturing and packaging of our commercial drug supply, and fund our support, our corporate and working capital needs. With that review, I'll pass it back to Peter for some closing remarks. Peter? Hey, thanks, Joe. And let me echo before opening up to Q&A, our overall pride in the ability to attract so many high-quality professionals uh, to our mission as a company at this exciting and, and really productive time for us here at Arenia. Our deepened engagement with the lupus nephritis community has underscored the importance of delivering a new standard of care to these people and potentially changing the course of their disease and their lives. We feel the importance of that mission, which we've been impressing on all our new staff, and it's driving our feeling of urgency to deliver an outstanding launch of Voclosporin. With regards to the dry eye syndrome program for Voclosporin, the Audrey results anticipated in the fourth quarter will build upon the exploratory phase two, phase two data produced last year, which pending regulatory discussions would lead to a confirmatory pivotal study for Voss. With a strong balance sheet and cash, cash equivalents and short-term investments of approximately $442 million at the end of July, we are amply funded to support the launch of Voclosporin and continued execution on our pipeline. I want to thank you all for your attention today, and the team and I are here to answer your questions. So with that, operator, please open up for a Q&A session. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to ask a question at this time, please press star 1 on your telephone keypad. The confirmation tone will indicate that your line is in the question queue. You may press star 2 if you would like to remove your question from the queue. For participants using speaker equipment, it may be necessary to pick up your handset before pressing the star keys. Our first question comes from the line of Alethea Young with Cantor Fitzgerald. Please proceed with your question. Hey guys, thanks for taking my question and congrats on a lot of the continued progress that you guys have been making. One, I guess, is kind of focusing a little bit on the launch, and I mean, I was looking at some of the subgroups in the Aurora study and, and just wanted to kind of talk about, um, you know, where you might think some of, the, who are the people that might benefit the most, 
you know, whether it be by race or, or gender or any other kind of like pre-specified um, measure that might be the most, you know, obvious people to start the therapy. And then um, can you just talk a little bit about um, kind of how you're managing and thinking about kind of dose adjustments in the real world? I know, you know, it happened during the clinical trial, but just um, trying to just kind of understand how some of these physicians will, will work through that in the real world and what kind of guidance you can give them things. Yeah, so I think the the first question, let me start, and then I'm, I'm going to try to you know, pass to Max, and he can give you a little bit of an update on, on what we've been doing in terms of our commercial preparation, how we're thinking about population, the dose adjustments. I mean, a lot of it's going to come down to how, how the label comes across, and, and but but, it, but it's a great question as to, you know, how we're going to sort of guide physicians. Neil might be also be able to give some, some input on uh, sort of from a real-world medicine standpoint, um, whether this is something that's common practice, which which I think in terms of monitoring and these adjustments, we feel pretty comfortable that, that physicians are going to be able to incorporate this into their practice. Um, so on the, uh, you know, the work that we've been doing in terms of um, the patient populations and where we think the, the drug could best be suited today, I think the beauty of our trials is we had a pretty broad capture strategy in terms of who could be, um, could, who could be incorporated in the trial. And as I said, post-data, I think we're going to try our best to, uh, to start, start at an aspirational point here and really challenge physicians on what patients shouldn't be um, on the drug. Um, you know, our, our trial was not a, a, drug, a trial done just for failure patients. Um, you know, we, we incorporated a broad group of, of patients and, and our, you know, depending on our label, of course, um, you know, our goal would be to, to really try to challenge the current standard of care, add our drug to the mix and give the, the patients what they deserve, which is the beneficial, you know, the, the additional benefit of, of our drug and the results that we've seen. And I'm going to turn it over to maybe Max Cloud and he can talk a little bit about sort of the question too and, and maybe dig a little bit more into some of the work as we're doing as it pertains to both patient um, flow modeling, positioning, et cetera. Max, you want to give a little bit of a, just a preview on that? And Max, you may need to unmute yourself. I know I got you. Thanks, Peter, and uh, <laughs> no thanks worries. for your. Um, as you know, LN is one of the most serious complications of SLE, and if it's, if it's left untreated, it leads to irreversible kidney damage, kidney failure, and even death. Uh, and you know that the standard of care focuses on immune suppression. Our phase three trial compared a bocosporin regimen relative to the standard of care. We know that with the standard of care, that long-term outcomes in LN are unsatisfactory due to the fact that, you know, a, a good subset of these patients progress to, to kidney failure and need replacement therapy. So, so as Peter said, we see this as an opportunity to reset the standard of care, and we see ourselves opening <coughs> for for a first-line patient. We're we're very excited about um, the potential for early in intervention with vocosporin. And we think that we can change the course of the disease and um, possibly prevent this irreversible kidney damage. And that is a, you know, a tremendous benefit as we think about um, long-term outcomes for, for LN. Can I just ask one quick follow-up? Um, you know, some people have asked me about, like, the, the Glaxo compound, and, and I know it works, tends to work slower, but I just wanted to get your perspective on kind of matching up some of these uh, different compounds with buckles for and things. 
Yeah, I think you're just talking about other other therapies that, that are currently either being on, are under investigation or going through the review process, like Ben Lista. I you know I think one of the benefits, um, and and I think obviously there's multiple to our product is the fact that in the clinical studies we've done to date, there the rapidity of of um, response that we see with this drug, you know, happens happens quickly, and and most of the other investigational drugs that that we've seen so far appear to take a longer time to. To, uh, uh, to get there, um, and all the trials are different, slightly different, um, and and I think you have to take that into account too. But at the end of the day, um, you know, we have an internal mantra that that you know the time is nephrons, and that you know it matters how quickly patients are put into control um, as to how their you know the disease is impacted, and to have the types of numbers we have as early as six months, we believe are going to be are going to be critically important, not just to uh, physicians in their treatment, but to the outcomes of patients. Um, Neil, anything you want to add to that? No, I mean, I think, um, Alicia, the um, takeaway from Benalista is that um, although the drug was well-tolerated and certainly had a, a, a well-defined treatment effect, it would appear, at least from the, the, the um, data that they presented so far, that, um, that their response rates at um, 18 months or, or two years are similar to ours at about six months. So I think you know, the, um, there's a magnitude of effect there, but also the caveat and caution that they've used different outcome measures in their trials as well, and, you know, we, we, you know, we, we have limited amounts of data on that particular compound. All we can do is talk in detail about what our compound does. Great, thank you. Thanks, Alicia. Thank you. Our next question comes from the line of Georgia Yordanov with Cowan. Please proceed with your question. Thank you guys for taking my question. Uh, so, yes, first, uh, uh, given the six-month priority review, could you comment on your progress in negotiation with payers and if we have any clarity on potential pricing? And then I do have a follow-up on the commercialization. Yeah, I'll, I'll jump in here, and then Max, if there's anything I miss, uh, you know, feel free. But you know, as we've said in previous calls, I mean, the song remains the same a little bit here in terms of uh, pricing. We're not going to come to a final price until we really see what the label looks like. If, if of course we uh, we get an approval and we get to go through label negotiations, I think it's going to be very finally determined by uh, by what that label looks like and. Max and his team, and uh, you know, actually, po even post phase two, um, you know, we took um, and went out and did quite a bit of research work with both payers and physicians um, to get a good idea of what price elasticity could look like um, uh, for the drug. Um, and we're doing the next round of that as we speak. Um, and Max said in his comments, um, intro comments, that you know, we're already out there engaging payers, so know that know that that's happening, and um, we're out there supporting the value. Proposition of Oculus Born, making the right introductions and ensuring that once we do have a label and a price, that we have um, as much ease of access as we can um, right from the outset. You know, I have said uh, in in, in uh, a lot of our past calls that um, I think if you look at the drugs that have been launched in like areas today over the last 10 areas, and when I say like areas, similar patient uh, population size. Um, mostly autoimmune disease, um, disease burden similar, um, you know, and, and that would include everything from RA to MS to 
um, some of the GI indications for biologics and small molecules. Um, you know, there's been a fairly wide range of prices taken by companies, at least in the work that we've done, anywhere from sort of the, call it the high fifteen to twenty thousand dollars a year, all the way up to you know the hundreds of thousands of dollars a year. But at the end of the day, the uh, there's sort of a fat grouping of where those product uh, launch prices seem to sit, and it's somewhere in call it a fifty to seventy thousand dollar a year range. Um, so I've guided um, of sorts to um, some of our other investors and analysts that. You know, I think, you know, that, that if you just want to use a benchmark of how other products are competing today in similar areas, that's sort of where the median is hitting today. I think we also have to take in consideration that we could have a competitor coming into the market in Ben Lista um, while they're an injectable formulation right now for SLE. Uh, that product, um, you know, was, was studied as a lyophilized IV infusion in lupus nephritis. So, um, you know, there may be some changes, but if we we try to, um, you know, just look at the average patient that has lupus nephritis, their weight, et cetera, and what we think a uh, weight-based infusion would look like, um, or we just look at what the average SLE patient is getting on an annual basis, you're probably looking at the, you know, high 30s, mid to low $40,000 a year range for Ben Lista. So I think we have to keep that in mind. Um, you know, it's a beacon we can look at. So um, key takeaways, we're talking to payers today aggressively. We're out there in the community starting to do our access work. Uh, at the end of the day, pricing is going to be determined by label and our overall value proposition. Everything else I've given you is just uh, context around which we uh, will be looking at other contexts that's sort of separate from the drug. Max, what did I miss on? Yeah, thanks, Peter. Um, you covered it pretty comprehensively. I, I could add that uh, we're pretty early in our payer engagement, but the payer feedback has been uh, positive so far, and we found payers to recognize the seriousness of LN and the associated burden from a clinical and economic standpoint. Uh, we've heard the payers appreciate um, our clinical results um, in showing superior efficacy to the standard of care uh, while demonstrating a safety profile that's comparable. And we've also um, heard payers appreciate uh, the potential to prevent um, irreversible kidney damage, which can lead to kidney failure, ESRD. So, um, so far, uh, the, the, the feedback has been positive. That's very, that's very helpful. Um, and I guess uh, just assuming that there'll be no advisory committee meeting, do you expect any standalone labeling discussions with the FDA? And do we expect to have any clarity on labor or any sort of communication prior to the Paducah date? Um, well, there'll be ongoing dialogue with the agency that's um, not something that's that's formal and communicated on a on a day-to-day -day basis and um you know as for example um of course we got we just passed our day 74 and we did receive correspondence from the agency at day 74 it was confirmatory of everything we've already reported so there was nothing meaningful in terms of changes in there but there are elements of um what would go in around directly and indirectly the label throughout that entire process and uh I think as Neil would would support, and I'd ask him for his comments here. Um, you know, it's a it's an ongoing process, and and the label itself will be something that will be in the mix all the way through up to approval. Neil, what, what would I uh, what would you add to that? 
Yeah, no, I think that's you. You covered most of it. Um, the discussions seem to go on in parallel with the with the general review. If something in the review brings about a consequent um, discussion point for the FDA and the label, then that's what comes out. That's great. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for taking time. Thanks. Thank you. Our next question comes from the line of Ed Arce with HC Wainwright. Please proceed with your question. Hi, everyone. Thanks for taking my questions. Um, I have a, a couple here. Um, first, um, given um, the expanded leadership team uh, that you have in place and um, many of the folks that you've uh, just recently hired, um, both in medical affairs and, and in the sales and marketing teams, I was wondering if you could just give us a bit more uh, detail qualitatively around um, how you think about um, uh, helping physicians specifically with uh, diagnosis and treatment decisions. Um, and then I have a follow-up. Thanks. Yeah, well, I mean, I'll, I'll start. Um, the, uh, probably the, the, one of the most exciting things I've seen as part of this process, especially in, in the current market environment with COVID and the fact that a lot of us aren't flying around the globe and, and doing live one-on-one -on -one interviews, has been the, um, the, the excitement that we've seen um, from external commercial people um, looking at the company. Um, I would put a lot of this on the fact that uh, you have um, commercially driven and sort of commercially raised people um, that are both running the company and, and newly um, brought into the company. So there's an element of followership that comes from that. Um, but, uh, you know, we're, we're hired just to go a little deeper on, on what I've seen from the resumes that Max has been able to recruit so far. I mean, these are deeply experienced folks. The majority have decades of experience. The majority come from more of a bio biologic or highly scientific orientation. And there's a huge percentage that are deep in rheumatology and deep in, in the area of nephrology. Um, many of these people, they've worked in and around Max and or myself for for the last uh, you know 10 or 20 years, in some cases more. So um, I, I can't overemphasize that um, I haven't seen sort of a, a ramp to commercial like this since either my Metamune or my Senecor days. So it's exciting. Um, the uh, you know other part of your question, you know I think as I look at um, everything we're trying to do in this early lead up to, to launch here at the. Uh, areas of trying to educate and uh, uh, get physicians on the patient identification side are going to be some of the most important. And I used a word uh, that, I, that I really want people to, to hang on, and that's we've got an aspiration to really try to change the course of the disease and change the course of how it's managed as it pertains to our drug if we're able to get the drug approved. Um, and that starts with the first rep call, first day, how our medical affairs folks work. Um, you can go for low-hanging fruit and identify the patient that this is right in the, the physician's mind, or you can go wide and aspirational and challenge the physician and challenge the system a little bit to ensure that um, you're getting as broad as possible. And that's what we intend to do. Now, our label will be a part of that, and the research work we've done in terms of the trials we've done are going to be a part of that. But as I said earlier, we have pretty wide open access on that. I think the question about diagnostics, I'm going to 
maybe push to Max because um, I know he's working on some of this. And Max, while we probably aren't going to give him everything, it'd probably be good just to, you know, if we, can, if we can reinforce some of the activity that we're doing up to this point. Max? Yeah, no, thanks. Um, thanks, Peter. Yeah, and I would add to Peter's comments that in, in, whether you think about it from a diagnostic standpoint or even from a treatment standpoint, this is not a satisfied market. We've heard this clearly from KOLs. We've heard it clearly from through market research. Uh, physicians are not satisfied with the standard of care and the type of, types of outcomes that they achieve in treatment, and and frankly also in the delays um, in, from going from SLE to being a diagnosed LN patient. And the early intervention matters um, for these patients. So really, you know, the 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 on the foundation of you know really tenured, experienced. Uh, folks with deep, long-standing relationships, it's going to boil down to clinical acumen, and it's going to boil down to education, and it's going to boil down to, you know, really um, effective promotion. And so, and that's what we're setting ourselves up for in terms of, you know, fostering um, the uh, the change in the in in, in current um, practices. Okay, um, that's helpful. Thank you. Uh, the other question I had was, um, uh, I, I realize this may be still a, a bit early, uh, and there may be some parties that would prefer to engage in more substantive discussions uh, post-approval, but just wondering if you could um, uh, perhaps give uh, any, any detail around the types of um, approaches, that the, the approach that you're taking um, as it relates to um, potential XUS partnerships. Thanks. Yeah, I mean, as as we've said, uh, you know, strategically in, in building the company, that we want to take a focus on the largest market opportunity, and that's the U.S. Um, for context, you know, you can look at quite a few analog products, Benlist even being one, where north of 85% of their overall product sales come from the U.S. So this is the area that should get the intense focus and should get the build and the investment in the company is going to drive the most shareholder value for um, for, for in investors and for the long-term build-out of the company. Um, so outside the U.S., we've um, we've basically concluded that, that a partner would be better served helping us out in terms of marketing and selling the drug. I can't, you know, really give you much update on the who and the when, but, um, you know, we've uh, talked to both regional and global pharma uh, companies um, and, and most of size and scale that have infrastructure, obviously, those are going to be the ones. Um, and uh, we feel good about our progress. Uh, I've not guided to timing on this or set, um, you know, sort of concrete expectations in terms of when we want to get this concluded for a number of reasons, the biggest being um, the situation we're in in terms of COVID um, and being just harder to predict when you can get a deal done today when, uh, you know, everything's being done remotely. Diligence uh, and, uh, and, and conversations have moved to fully phone and fully computer at this stage. And um, while we have longstanding relationships with many of these companies, we can't predict with how their internal processes are, are being impacted. So we still feel very comfortable we can get a deal done. And that, um, you know, it's a goal for us of the year. Uh, so uh, stay tuned. Um, and, uh, you know, it's ongoing, I guess is all I can say, Ed. Great. Thanks, Peter. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Our next question comes from Joseph Schwartz with SVB Learing. Please proceed with your question. Great. Thanks very much. Congrats on all the progress. Um, I was wondering if you could talk about how your field force is structured and 
position to cover the landscape of treaters uh, for LN patients. Um, how how um, effective do you think that the um, the uh, resources that you're putting in place uh, can be? Yeah, I think uh, I think it's a really good question. I mean, obviously the uh, um, two main specialties we're calling on here are nephrologists and, and rheumatologists, and obviously the uh, this COVID situation has had impacts on everyone, um, especially patients and physicians, and the relationship between the two. Uh, you know, while we see regional differences, you know, sort of state by state, as to and and actually doctor office by office, um, uh, in terms of how open access is to you know face to face interactions, um, et cetera. Um, I would say that you know just this is a, a sick patient population and. You know, patients are still being seen by physicians, and um, you know we're not hearing of any major lapses. And I'll, I'll turn to Neil for comment and Max as well. But um, lapses in treatment um, and care, et cetera, um, because it is a serious patient population. Um, but but the question around access and, and promotion and how you launch a drug in this space, we're learning as we go, just like everybody else, and know that our assumptions include. Uh, everything from you know un unfettered access, which I don't think is reality today, to you know if we had got back to a full lock lockdown, how we would how we would do that as well. There's a lot more virtual going in, and our team is being I think very smart about how they're looking at this evolving market under our feet. And uh, all I can tell you is, depending on where the situation is with the pandemic, um, we will be prepared to do uh, what we think will be best to launch the product, and whether that's in a lockdown situation or, or you know, sort of a hybrid or, um, you know, completely wide open, which I actually don't think will be the case by January, but we will have to see. Um, Neil, any comments from you on what you're hearing from trial sites, et cetera, and then maybe we can have Max just give any comment he might have on uh, planning around this pandemic, et cetera? I mean, I think, um, you know, access to site stuff is as good or better than it's ever been uh, remotely because people, I guess, are less physically tied up um, with their uh, with their, their work in the hospitals, for the most part, they're getting more time to be able to use vir, you know, uh, virtual communications. I think one of the things that helps as well is the, the very, very strong pre-existing relationships that, that uh, the arena groups have with, with, with a very broad range of, of opinion leaders, and that certainly, can, that certainly help, helps access and helps the quality of the communications moving forward. But now, I mean, I think, um, you know, uh, as Peter said, uh, you know, we'll have to see how things go, but at the moment, um, we don't seem to be compromised uh, in that matter. Yeah, thanks. And, and uh, what, what I would add is that uh, we're paying very close attention to, to uh, best practices in terms of um, launching therapeutics uh, during this time. Uh, and, you know, frankly, by in, uh, it, it, the sales force continues to be the, the fundamental um, success factor to successful launches um, today. We're adapting, of course. We're adapting our training. We're adapting and also what we do in terms of our engagement above and beyond our sales force. Uh, we're, as Peter said, we're learning as we go uh, along with everybody else. Uh, but we firmly believe that uh, the sales force is going to be key to our success, and, and, uh, and, and, and that's, what, that's what exactly what we're building to. Thanks for the added information. Thanks, Joe.
Thank you. Our next question comes from Justin Kim with Oppenheimer & Company. Please proceed with your question. Hi, good afternoon, everyone, and uh, congrats on all the progress. I don't have too many questions on my end, but uh, maybe just on the anticipated Audrey readout in 4Q, can you just talk a little bit on a high level what types of results would help inform dose selection through future trial design and, and sort of the path forward generally for the program? Yeah, so that I don't oversimplify this answer, let me uh, let me ask Neil to maybe comment on uh, what we hope to see in terms of making a directional decision on uh, on the right dose from the uh, from the next trial. You know, I think um, we, with any dose ranging study, we're looking for the right balance of of efficacy and tolerability. Um, although um, with our with our highest concentration. Um, formulation that we tried in the exploratory study, the, the drug is extremely well tolerated. Um, we obviously, the primary endpoint is the improvement in Schirmer tear test because that's consistent with the endpoints that have been used to approve other calcium neuron inhibitors in dry disease, sequa, and, um, and restasis. But also, we seem to see a very good signal from our exploratory study of extremely good um, uh, outcomes in terms of corneal staining, which of course is on the label for, for Zyder as well. Um, and so I, you know, I think a good combination um, of uh, Schirmer tear test scores, uh, corneal staining, but also um, symptoms, um, uh, are, for example, hydrinus, which is built into our pre-specified hierarchical endpoints, um, uh, you know, is going to dictate uh, w you know, w which, one we move, which one we move forward. Um, you know, also in terms of an ideal result, it would be very good to see, you know, where the uh, efficacy lies. So, for example, our hope is for, um, the efficacy is less um, is less sort of visible in, in the very very low concentration. But we don't know. Um, you know, that, that's why we're doing the trial. Okay, that's really helpful. Um, and then maybe just a modeling question on the PNL front. Uh, it seems that you know some of the pre-commercial pre-commercialization activities for uh, 2Q have been reflected in GNA. Just wondering, how should we think about R&D spend and uh, the potential for expenses based on production of commercial supply going forward? Well, we haven't um, we haven't given much uh, guidance on this yet for for number of reasons. Um, but uh, you know, Joe, you want to try to tap this around a little bit? Um, maybe maybe give them a directional answer on that. Yeah, sure. Thanks, Peter. Um, you know, I, I would say directionally, as as we mentioned, we continue to kind of build out the infrastructure. So one would expect that the costs throughout the remainder of the year will will increase uh, accordingly as as we become fully burned quarter over quarter. Um, as we kind of look toward, towards R&D expenses, obviously we have some trials that uh, are still ongoing. Um, there's been somewhat of a shift in R&D related costs, obviously towards NDA um, submission slash approval and away from some of the clinical trial costs. As we move through the back half of this year, um, I think that shift will continue. We look into the outer years. Um, you know, obviously we're evaluating other, uh, you know, indications at this point. So it, it's a little tough to say what will happen with R&D in the out years. I would say, um, you know, probably remaining fairly flat uh, compared to this year um, as we kind of look. And again, it'll be more of a shift in the nature of the spend than the actual spend itself. Um, as far as inventory costs, yes, um, you know, there was obviously some expensing of inventory that ran through R&D in the past as we look into the future. Um, you know, those will obviously ship from R&D related expenditures into, into cost of goods sold. 
And I guess okay. the, the last thing I would add to that, just and obviously um, with a with an approval and a launch, you know, imminent, like we gain the approval, um, it's going to be on us to uh, come forward and say, here's what our here's what our infrastructure looks like. Here's how many you know sales reps and or other um, infrastructure we've we've brought on board, and to try to give some directional guidance on on how that will look going forward. I guess the other thing I would mention um, is on the R and D front. Um, obviously, we have Vaclav foreign today. Our goal is going to continue to be uh, a company focused on the development of drugs. And, uh, you know, as I've said in the past, I think it's important that we continue to look to diversify our pipeline. And until we do that, um, it's just sort of a speculative thing. Um, if we're only investing in, in Vaclisporin, the amount of R&D line is going to be, you know, limited as we move forward. Um, but our goal won't be to be there. It'll be to diversify the pipeline as we have in other companies prior to this. Okay, great. Um, just had a last question. Uh, in terms of uh, European uh, filing, just wondering what the progress was towards that and uh, with the guidance, I think maybe last time I checked was by first half of next year. Is that is that still correct? Yeah, as we said, it's six, it's six to nine months behind where we are with the FDA right now and our work with the FDA and the U.S. filing. Um, and we've we've added the, the uh, extra three months on there just for a little bit of buffer in terms of uh, – uh, this current pandemic situation. Um, previously, I think we had said more like six. Um, we could still be there, um, but um, we're probably thinking somewhere in the six to nine month range for the EMA. And then uh, when we look out to Japan, where we need, we're trying to work to schedule a meeting with the PMDA, um, our ongoing work there to try to get a little bit more of a range in on target for uh, for Japan. And when we have that, we'll provide it. Great. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you. Our next question comes from the line of Maury Raycroft with Jeffries. Please proceed with your question. Hi, everyone. Uh, congrats on the progress, and thanks for taking my questions. I'll try to be quick. I, for, I was wondering for Aurora to the double-blind double extension study, it seems like you should have the, the one-year extension data by year-end of this year. And so I'm just wondering if you're planning on reporting that at the end of this year or what the plans are there for disclosure. Neil, you want to bat this around? Or you want me yeah, to yeah. It? I mean, actually, um, it's a two-year two extension, Maury. So the results, the final results for that will not be available until the end of next year. Got it. Okay. Okay. And then um, the other question I had was just on additional uh, proteinuric uh, indications that you could pursue um, with baclosporin, it could theoretically work in a lot of different indications. I guess, can you say if the, if the new program, if that's going to be focused on one indication or will you run a basket study? And what are some of the main considerations that you have for choosing which indications to pursue? Neil, you want to take this? Sure, yeah. I'm actually, yeah, we were still looking at plans. Our considerations I'll take first. And, you know, it's not only the commercial potential commercial viability and where the drug would work, because that's a little bit more straightforward, but it's also um, the competitors in the space, the off-label use of other CNIs, and the potential to be able to actually recruit, especially during the pandemic in the disease. Um, you know, what we want to do is, um, uh, as and when we launch interest studies, it's got to be clinically meaningful to physicians, but also um, of use to a prescribing physician from the results perspective at the end of the day. Um, so, you know, we've got all those kind of considerations. And you're right, we have um, 
at the potential to do a basket study where we can learn more um, about which indications to, to progress. Um, but also, um, I think um, you know there, there are some schools of thought, especially in our physician community, that think that believe that we know enough about about this uh, drug and, and many of these diseases. Um, and um, you know, we, we may potentially go into into just one or more indications. But we will update you towards the end of the year on that. Um, we're doing a deep dive. We have to get uh, you know input from our. Uh, commercial and also our, our um, key opinion leader colleagues, you know, um, to make sure that we're um, making the right decision here. Got it. That's helpful. Uh, thanks for taking my questions. Thanks, Mark. Thank you. Our next question comes from the line of Dagon Ha from BTIG. Please proceed with your question. Great. Good afternoon. Thanks for taking my questions and congrats on all the progress. Um, You've laid out the commercial work that's uh, that's going on, the pre-commercialization work that's been going on. So just looking ahead, um, I guess based on your interactions with Taywealth and your uh, commercial strategy and other pre-commercialization efforts, I was wondering in the backdrop of the current COVID-19, what kind of a ramp or a kind of a launch dynamic um, are you guys anticipating, uh, recognizing the fact that um, doctor visits are not as frequent, but at the same time, the telemedicine and the virtual uh, access seems to be helping in some way. So how should we think about that? And I've got a follow-up. Yeah, I, I mean, I'm going to take take this one for Max. Um, you know, as we said, uh, we're, we're not at the stage right now where we're guiding on, on specific revenue numbers and, and uh, what the, the sort of shape of our curve is going to look, look like in general. Um, I, all the COVID situation aside, I mean, uh, but we, as we get closer to year end and a potential approval, uh, we'll start to to help folks understand more what, what our expectations are. Uh, but we're working on all that right now. We don't have a drug. We don't have a label yet. We don't have an approval. We, we don't have a price. Um, so we want to make sure that we roll all that out at the right time. Um, know, though, that, um, you know, our aspirations are to, to, to do really well with this drug. And as Max said in, in his uh, notes in the uh, transcript, um, you know, we want to surprise people and we want a very successful launch for patients, for investors, and for the company and our growth, um, but more to come as we get closer to uh, potential approval at the end of the year. Great. Um, and just real quickly, as we look toward um, Audrey, obviously Audrey has implications for your future development and uh, dry eye disease. Just wondering, uh, in terms of your commercial plan in ophthalmology, I know you previously mentioned that you'll be looking for a partner, but at the same time, um, you could maybe even start commercializing on your own while concurrently working on a partnership. So if you wouldn't mind just uh, reminding us um, sort of the considerations that you're looking for in your partnership, and is there a uh, quote-unquote timeline that you currently have in terms of when you want that kind of inked? Uh, is it before, after uh, phase two, three Audrey data? Well, I, I think the uh, the market will somewhat dictate a, d dictate to us a little bit the timing of when a deal can get done. I, you know, I, we, I think we've fully uh, expected in our plans that that we'll fund this thing all the way through, um, you know, through the to the regulatory process like we did LN. I think that's the smart assumption. Uh, but if someone were to come in and and 
talk to us now and want to do something in terms of code development, be involved in that process, be involved in the regulatory process, I think you'd have open ears on uh, on this side of the phone. Um, I, that being said, you know, I would, I would, we've made sure to say to investors are two things. One, um, our core is really autoimmune disease with a with a really um, sort of acute focus on renal um, and and you know even more so uh, sort of rare rare renal um, diseases and we'd like to try to stay in and around there um, that doesn't necessarily mean that if we get a burden hand and we have a drug uh, that looks great and dry eyes commercially competitive and we don't have a partner that we couldn't figure out a way to launch the drug and um, I think the ideal path for launch is a is a global company that would would have deeper pockets and have the ability to invest at a much higher level than a than a small company would. Um, we're firm believers that dry eye is um, like a, like many other diseases crosses multi specialty. It's primarily an ophthalmology play, but these patients see. Uh, the pharmacy, they see a primary care physician, then they see an ophthalmologist, um, and they see a lot of different types of ways to, to take care of the disease even before it's diagnosed, in some cases even after. So um, we think a partner that has an infrastructure and has the ability to do direct-to-consumer marketing, et cetera, and spend money to get this to where it could potentially go in terms of size is probably a better approach. But that being said, if we get caught in a situation where um, we have a drug approval and we have the ability to launch it, I do think there are targeted ways to launch uh, launch in this space as well, and we won't miss the opportunity on either side. But strategically right now, our primary focus is autoimmune disease, lupus nephritis, uh, the kidney, and, and the like. Um, ophthalmology is a great bolt-on because of the great molecule that we have, um, but we would uh, we would probably look to partner and timing on that will be ongoing. Great. Thanks for taking our questions. Thank you. Thank you. Our next question comes from the line of Doug Mime with RBC Capital Markets. Please proceed with your question. Uh, good afternoon. Um, just a single question that has to do with uh, the label. Peter, you've mentioned this a couple times in terms of its importance, but um, based on the quality of your data that you've generated, perhaps what you could do is provide us with uh, what you think the bookends are in terms of what the optimal label could be and um, maybe what the you know the negative label could be in your opinion. And then if you could tie that into an important question that I think you asked at the beginning of the call, which was which patients that are currently on standard of care would not go on this. Um, if you could sort of walk us through that, that'd be helpful. And that's it for me. Thanks. Yeah, oh God, Neil, I'm going to need your help a, a little bit on this one. And, and it's always um, difficult to, when you ask a question on, on you know, hey, what, what, what would be best case, worst case scenarios? Uh, I mean, I, I'll speak in generalities because we're in the middle of talking to the age, agency. So I, I think that you know, to really start pegging what expectations should be for the label, et cetera. I wouldn't want anything to um, poison those conversations or, or sort of lead those conversations for the company and our clinical folks as they're in dialogue. But I think the, the, the short answer to what could be a much more complex question on the label is, you know, we would hope that um, we're, allowed, we're afforded the ability for to, to, to have in our label the ability to have a drug to treat active lupus nephritis. Um, and, um, you know, 
to probably not have a lot of collar around how long that treatment is, maybe the appropriate warnings where where they need to be uh, around what's been studied and not, but, um, you know, a pretty open um, area of, of, of um patients to be able to try to help with the drug. And we've looked at probably the transplant area as a good area to look at, at you know, sort of how those labels are written for CNIs. And, um, you know, they're, they're I wouldn't say they have the appropriate warnings and precautions, but at the end of the day, um, they're written pretty widely in terms of um, length, duration of use and in terms of the patient population. So that would be our hope. You know, worst case scenario is, is always when it becomes limiting, where, you know, um, here's what you studied, here's what the expectation should be, um, this has not been studied, should, patient it should be limited to only these areas, et cetera. Those are the things, pitfalls we're trying to avoid. And since we're first, um, hopefully first, potentially first, uh, to be approved here, our hope is that the agency will allow for patients to get the benefit of the drug that we studied, bottom line. Um, in terms of patient populations that, that we should expect, I'll go back to the, to the previous answer where, um, you know, we want to go, we want to go as far as we can, as wide as we can, and really be aspirational and really try to change the standard here. Um, patients that maybe wouldn't be appropriate, um, patients that have, if there are contraindications, the contraindications, obviously, um, and, uh, you know, patients maybe that are, that are doing just fine. Uh, but even there, um, you know, challenging that physician to go out and ensure that, that they're really looking at the diagnostic approach to those patients to ensure that they are truly doing fine, not just of opinion, um, would be important since it's a very silent disease. Um, it's not like patients are coming and complaining of symptoms with this. It's uh, proteinuria is measured, and we've got to ensure that that continues to happen. So hopefully I just answered that for you, Neil. I, we get a lot more technical there, but I don't think it's uh, in our best interest with our ongoing negotiations with the FDA to say anything, but we hope to be aspirational in how wide we can go. Thank you. We have reached the end of our question and answer session, so I'd like to pass the floor back over to Mr. Greenlee for any additional closing comments. Yeah, I want to thank everybody for taking the time with us this evening. I hope you all um, have a great end of your week, and thanks for continuing to take the ride with us. Have a great day. Ladies and gentlemen, this does conclude today's teleconference and webcast. Once again, we thank you for your participation, and you may disconnect your lines at this time. Thank you for listening to TSX Quarterly. If you enjoyed the cast, remember to leave a good rating. And remember, for any additional inquiries, please consult the company's investor relations section on their website. See you next time.